What is up, partner up? We're uh, midstream in February, and I feel like everyone has been stuck in um, sales kickoff mode. It's that time of year where you're trying to get partners involved, how do partners fit in, and um, where does our ecosystem fit in? Does it make it into the executive slides or not? But um, welcome to uh, episode number one five, um, where we're sitting here, Justin and myself. He's got his uh, guitar in the background there. Justin, have you... Have you tried to make the riff to our intro and outro music yet? Like, I think I'm, next phase, I, I got to work on it a little bit. That one collects a lot of dust. My acoustic gets a lot more love. So I'm going to have to fire up the amp and work on a couple of riffs with the electric guitar. But um, yeah, we'll see. Maybe next time. In an episode to come, we're going to bring the rock and roll experience. And Justin's going to get the intro and outro song, the uh, the Justin Bartels version. But we're joined today by someone I'm so excited to chat with. Um David Pilgrim actually introduced us as Norma Wattenpah, who is the uh, founder and CEO of Phoenix Consulting Group. And Norma, welcome to Partner Up. Well, thank you for inviting me. Appreciate it. No, we're, we're excited to have you because, um, you know, partnerships is, is a lot of consulting. And often if you're inside the tech world, you're typically working with consultants um, and you're helping them transform their businesses to transform other people's businesses. So you've kind of been in this um, consulting function of helping companies build their their partner ecosystems, um, generally speaking at Phoenix. Is that correct? Yes, I've been doing that for quite a few years. And, you know, just prior to that, I had real jobs in actually helping companies build and scale their partner programs so that they could scale with, you know, fast growth markets. But last couple of years, I've uh, been focused more on helping uh, clients do the same. That's awesome. And, and today, what we're going to be talking about is kind of like ecosystem economics. I, we've been on this trend and thread re, uh, lately of s trying to stop talking about partner programs as partner programs or partner teams or partner departments and really having companies that have these programs start to think and talk in terms of ecosystems. And one area that we haven't really dove into is how to think about the economics of an ecosystem. Um, so maybe we can start there because when we were chatting prior to uh, the call starting, you said, we we're like, hey, we want to talk about ecosystem economics. You said, well, we that has to start with customer experience. And to me that went, well, the customer experience has nothing to do with economics. Tell me more. Tell me well, why? Why do you when we're talking about building ecosystem economics? Why do you start with customer experience? Because quite often, in especially when you're dealing with complex solutions and technical solutions and digital transformation or whatever the buzzword is, IoT, your customers experience your products and your services through your partners, right? So that customer experience is the partner or the partners are the customer experience. So understanding what role they play and quite often these solutions have five, six different partners involved and involved in different niches around that whole uh, buying decision that the customer has, the uh, actual transaction, the implementation and even the aftermarket. So understanding how all those different roles are is very important and of course, that leads to economics because how do partners make their money? It depends on their business model and how they create value for the customer, but that's what the customers are paying them for. So that's where the story of customer experience begins and how it affects partners because their revenue and their business models are dependent on how they serve and create value for your customer. 
so you, you break that down on like where the partner touch points are to the customer experience. And I, I hate to say the monetization, but the economic opportunity of each of those functions, right? Like um, one individual who I know you know, because he was a part of one of your conferences, Jay McBain from Forrester, right? Um, he talks about the trifurcated channel model, right? Of like uh, sell, service, build. And you try to like break out the, okay, how are those three components being monetized or the customer experience is, is being touched? Um, and then you move into what, like what roles do the partners play? Tell me more. Yeah. I mean, it's all about the, what you said, the build service um, sell, but it's also at what point do they intersect with the, the customer experience? And when Jay talks about trifurcation of the channel, he'll also talk about, well, you've got influencers. They're non-transacting. They're in there early in the customer buying journey. They're influencing your partner, your customers. They're telling him, uh, this is how you'd be a better bank. This is how you'd be a better agricultural flying service or whatever that business is the customer is in. So they're providing that kind of advice, which at some point is going to translate to, okay, how do you digitally transform to serve that business? What is the ecosystem you need to implement that digital um, transformation, that digital business model that you want to achieve? So that's all before anyone buys anything, any hardware, any software, any services. It's at the point when they're still trying to decide how do they create that digital business model or the IoT business model or whatever, whatever that business model is that customers are trying to implement to be more viable. And certainly that's accelerated over the last year as, as uh, COVID has tend to accelerated a lot of our decisions. Um, but, you know, that's one aspect of the buying cycle. It's even before your customer ever buys any anything product-oriented. They're listening to their trusted advisors, their consultants. And sometimes it's it's quite surprising. Um, I did a, a, years ago, was helping a company move into the criminal justice market. And there it was the FBI, because they were advocating certain applications and certain software solutions they weren't selling anything. They were just talking to chiefs of police saying, you know, if you had this application, you could catch more bad guys. So it can become from very unusual sources. And then you have the traditional transaction uh, partner who's selling, right? They're going to provision your, your cloud application. They're going to help support it and help the customer implement it. Um, but even then, there might be other services attached to that. Again, that's something the partner can sell, and that's a revenue stream for them. So they can uh, look at how do we integrate that application with other software services that you have in your environment. Um, typically, Marketo said that a typical customer would buy five to six, seven other applications you know, in their market nation or whatever they called it. But other ISVs that helped him manage events or webinars or whatever. <laughs> so it was a larger uh, footprint, a larger solution than just what they were. One of the interesting things about that kind of an ISV model is that it creates stickiness. It's hard to unwrap that. Right. We've certainly seen that in, uh, you know, Salesforce's, um, you know, their, their earnings reports, you know, quarter over quarter, um, Adobe's, right. The integrated solution approach certainly works. Um, in the way that, you know, I've seen that broken down is like, um, 
is you typically end up, you know, thinking and talking through about breaking this down into a couple different types of um, um, transactions. There is the, you know, the influence transaction, and then there is the kind of like the aftermarket um, engagement. Um, so whenever you're thinking about the influence transaction, it's, I think you've said it before, it's like, how do you equip them to advise? Right. And then the aftermarket engagement, it's how do you equip them to, you know, serve, onboard, train, enable? Let's talk about the influence transactions and building out that economic model. Um, how do you, you know, start to think about equipping um, partners to advise? Well, when you think about those types of partners, they're usually consulting partners. Uh, and what are they selling? At the, at the heart of it, they're selling expertise. And so that's what you provide them. So the more they know and understand what your products and services do, the more they understand how it drives business outcomes for customers, they're going to lead what they have, what they're most familiar with and where there's a less risk. So, you know, that's all part of the knowledge base that they have. So a lot of that influence um, model is, yes, they want to see leads from you. Yes, they, you know, they appreciate sales assistance, but fundamentally, they have to feel comfortable in, in leading with you. They have to be see you as a trusted partner. You have to equip them with enough expertise that when they go in front of a customer, they're representing something that's really going to be a value to that end customer. So here's where a lot of training goes in. Um, you, or you can go to market with them around thought leadership because they like to, you know, KPMG likes to tout how smart they are about tax and audit, right? So, you know, to the extent that you can help them show that they are the trusted advisor, they have expertise, they have knowledge, they can understand your product, know best how to implement it to support whatever the customer um, problems they're facing, uh, the more they're going to lead with you. Tell me more about how you think about this in terms of like building the for lack of a better phrase, the partner operating model, right? If we're thinking about economics, there's some investment, you know, or capital or cost structure around these training programs, but even like the creation of those knowledge products that help partners, like um, a lot of companies have like business value consulting groups inside of them, right? Where they're, they're actually selling consulting engagements to help the customer drive the best outcome. How do you think about, you know, where do you make your investments uh, around these influence transactions um, and, and kind of modeling? Do you need to zoom out and see the full picture or can you kind of start and go, hey, we're really going to double down here. So how do we think about making that investment you know, economically? Well, I can tell you that for one client, we, we actually started going out and talking to customers. We went out and talked to partners and tried to understand what those economic models were a little better. Um, so we knew what was going to motivate them. So... You know, you can probably make some guesses and get it mostly right, but to really understand, you know, where you're going to make big bets, it's probably best to go out and talk to partners, talk to customers and understand a little bit better. And, you know, some of the things we discovered is that, um, you know, I think I talked to you about this before, a particular client had uh, like a 97% of their partners weren't even engaging. They only had a 3% engagement rate. So it was important to understand what was going on there. And most most companies see, you know, 80-20 is a good model. You know, 20% of your, your partner ecosystem is actually engaged in driving new business, new revenue for you. So getting to that 
point and talking to customers and understanding, you know, who did they rely on? Who were the go-to partners? What was missing? And they, then you could work backwards with the partners and say, okay, um, what were they seeing? What motivated them? In some cases with the um, partners that are providing services, what we saw is that when you looked at their economic model, they were seeing several different revenue streams. One of them might have been transaction, but it wasn't the biggest part of their business. The biggest part of their business might have been um, the, the consulting or the implementation services. So how do you leverage that part of their business? What kind of incentives and programs do you provide to enable them to be more effective in those areas? And in this particular case, what we found is that customers, the partners really liked the uh, professional development proof of concept uh, support they got from the client. So funding that had a lot of impact, uh, particularly with smaller partners where that was an investment on their part. They would usually do these proof of concepts before they saw any significant revenue from customers. So that helped them front end their expenses to go and really win the business. And that was a really big win for them. And of course, they made it back on the back end, right, when they started actually implementing and charging for services. But it was important to go in and, and actually, you know, have those discussions and say that, okay, in a, in a particular sale around a particular software product that margins were this much, there was some back-end incentives, but they were getting four times more service revenue. If they had IP, they were getting 10 times more revenue. So understanding those revenue models in that, you know, you, you might think that you're giving, and I see this as a mistake all the time with, with part companies that have very um, entrenched, sometimes legacy channel models, that it's all about the margin. It's not. It's not anymore. It's, it's where are the services? Where is the additional IP a partner can bring into it? How long can they stay in account and continue to add value and grow the business for you? So it's mapping out all those different revenue streams and understanding how to incent and enable those different revenue streams. I want to double click into that uh, a little bit, especially the first part, because I found in chatting a lot of partnership mm -hmm. professionals, it's very natural for them to go and do, you know, ha have conversations with their partners around what are the problems are they seeing? What challenges are they seeing? Um, are they servicing customers that relate to my product or offering? But I want to dig into the, the customer conversations because I don't see a ton of partner professionals doing that. What types of questions are you talking, are you asking, you know, your customers when you're you know, diving into those sessions with them? Uh, this is the sort of thing where if you're coordinating well with your account sales, your direct account sales, you can get a lot of information here. Um, because you're right, I don't think the partner reps do that. So not the, the inside right. partner reps, right? The partner your partners are certainly, but it's also, you, you, you know, you often, especially with the larger um, enterprise accounts, you typically have a direct account manager in there who can also have a lot of information there. Uh, when you go down market, small, medium business, you need to have those conversations yourself because they're usually not covered. But, you know, as, as your account managers are planning their, their account plans, you know, one of the things is to encourage them to talk to partner to, to their customers as to who their partners are, who are their trusted advisors, who's already in there, what kind of relationships do they have, 
um, sometimes you find that partners are calling much higher in the organization than you are. They're calling on business decision makers versus IT. Or, um, you know, they've been golfing with the CEO for years. Yeah. You know, so you need to find out all those relationships. And that leads you to understand, you know, what partners are already in there? Do you have relationships with them? Should you be building better relationships with them? And then talking to those partners about uh, what opportunities there are. Because they're always doing account planning, too, with those accounts, you know. So they might see opportunities you're not. You might have a fit someplace that you didn't become aware of. Um, you know, I have a war story in the past where what our direct sales team thought they had a 500K deal with a, a, a bank. And, and they found out that uh, one of their major partners had been golfing with the CIO for 30 years. And they actually had a $5 million deal because he was seeing the, the opportunities within that account at a much higher level and could see a lot more different, um, you know, initiatives and projects going on where the product was a good fit. It's such a beautiful, simple question to enable your sellers and your account managers to ask in their QBRs and their ongoing touch points. I think this is a that's a great tactical you know step one. If you're a new person who's starting an ecosystem or a partner program, start by enabling your sales team to ask that question or, or lean into technologies like Gong or Chorus to find trackers and converse, recorded conversations where your customers are mentioning partner. And that's a great I think a great first leaning point just to understand why are customers working with those partners, what type of partners they are, so that you can then start to frame out an ideal customer profile or your your first best set of target partners to maybe bring into the of your ecosystem. I love that. You, you mentioned um, talking about intellectual property, kind of like, before, I don't know if we'll go into the services side, but I'm particularly interested in the IP um, in developing intellectual property with your partners, because in my opinion, over the next 10 years, our service partners' uh, margins and uh, service opportunities going to become more or less. I mean, the cloud changed everything, but I think AI is also going to change a lot, right? Over the next 10 years, as it relates to these business application, you know, softwares, whether it's marketing, sales, what have you, is that the the margin for the partner is going to become less service-oriented and more uh, expertise-oriented, more IP-oriented. Um, I, I have some friends like Max Trailer. Max is um, really great at helping agencies build what he calls knowledge products, right? So manufacturing demand for intellectual property. How have you, because this seems on the influence side, part of what would be most helpful pre-sales is like, there is a strategic advisor and they are a partner and they're coming in to help drive this expertise. Presumably, if this is a new partner you've recruited or you're going out and you're going to recruit 50 of them, they don't have that IP yet. This is something that you're going to help them build. Talk to me about how you think you should be building that knowledge product for your company or like, how do you advise companies on like, hey, you need to go build intellectual property inside of someone else's company that isn't on your payroll. And like, you kind of have to be pretty whip smart to whip up an IP product around this. I'd love to get more of the Norma's thoughts on this. Well, a lot of times it's leveraging their own expertise. I mean, I remember having a conversation with a company that did uh, IT services for construction companies. And we were in a, in a discussion where this uh, woman who specializes in selling, buying and selling companies was telling them, if you've got IP, 
you're like five times more valuable to a buyer than if you're just selling services. And the lights kind of went on with this guy. And he said, you know, one thing that the construction companies are really bad at is managing their documentation. There's a change order, you know, they want to move a beam someplace and they have to alter the documents and they screw it up. They don't document it right and they put in the beam wrong. And he thought, you know, one thing we could really help them with is that kind of a solution. We could develop IP. We could develop an application that helped them, you know, track changes in in building specs and building uh, orders. And so he went off to do that. (laughs) And there, of course, are are, uh, uh, a number of different, uh, I don't know which one he finally went with, but there there are software products out there that help track you know, change management and track document and versioning. And, you know, he could use that and to leverage the workflow, applying his own vertical expertise in the construction industry. So that, that, that kind of goes down the path of, you know, you have a platform and companies can build, you know, actual software IP, right? So building on the application layer to extend your product's value. What about on the the intellectual, the true intellectual property side of where it's actually a knowledge product and it's a process for, let's say, auditing, right, current processes and then making recommendations and guiding, you know, strategy, which is such a fluff word. But a lot of companies do need that strategic help. And if you're going to get good partners, like you want to partner with Accenture or Deloitte or even, you know, name a big SI or big five or whoever, even just a mediocre one they're going to have some expectations of like, okay, how are you going to help me build the IP for Acme Co for software X, which is more of the strategy. Do you just let your partners go and run with it and try to figure it out? How do you think about building the more strategy expertise side of it? That really kind of plays the core of what strategic alliance professionals do is that they would work with them because you can't make that kind of investment with every partner, right? In many cases you expect a partner to, uh, like this construction company that I, you know, IT company that I talk with is that they saw the opportunity and they ran with it. But if you're working with a larger partner, sometimes you have to, you know, work with them more collaboratively to get to that point. Um, so, and, and make some more resources available to them. So there's this kind of front end thing of understanding where are the market opportunities? Where do you want to make these investments? What makes sense for both of you? So if you're working with SIs, they're often very vertically oriented. They have practice specialties. So trying to line up with where they are really focused on the market and where you can bring something that's unique. Uh, It takes some discussion. It takes some discovery to say, okay, we can do uh, a healthcare application of our widget, you know, whatever it is. And they're bringing the vertical expertise. You provide some resources that help them with the uh, deep product or deep API expertise and kind of help work with them to build that application, that, you know, variant of your application and then go to market around. Um, I love what he's, I don't know that I've actually ever heard a definition of a strategic alliances person, but in the context of that question, it's actually really good, right? Like if you're a strategic alliance person versus just an alliance or you know channel or business development, your goal is to help develop strategy for that company to go sell into the market. To create new markets. Right, to create new markets even, it, right? And that's- It's not just sell harder. It's, it's how do you get, open up new revenue streams that you didn't have access to before. That's fantastic. I think uh, there's a lot of strategic 
uh, business development alliance positions out there in, I think, in startup land more so than, uh, you know, the upper end of, um, you know, mid to enterprise companies. And I think they lack that concept around exactly what you just said, um, is that like, look, you're here to develop new markets and build that strategy. Um, I love that answer. I love that answer. What I'd like to transition to now is like, if we're talking about the influence and the, um, um, like the post-sale side of things, how do you start to think about benchmarking for that influence, whether you're selling intellectual property, et cetera, like the, you know, unit economic side of the equation, um, for kind of benchmarking, um, uh, influence, uh, type partners. That is an age old question. Is <laughs> the channels fairly straightforward, right? There's a PL, there's a number on it. You know exactly what that customer, that channel partner is delivering on the influence side. It, it might be more, um, Fuzzy, and yet it could be very, very large. Um, and it it takes some tracking because quite often you're selling independently them from their services. So quite often you you often do maybe a deal referral, which will kind of help monetize what that opportunity was, where they bring you an opportunity, you close it, you know how much you sold it for, so you know how much you know the impact of their influence was. So that's one approach. But quite often, these some of these partners don't take deal referral, or you don't often have a lot of visibility into it. Uh, sometimes the best you can do is maybe track the top ten deals in your viewfinder to make to see how those things are going. Um, but I think that's always been a um, perennial challenge. There's a couple products out now. I think Workspan is one that enables enables alliance managers to kind of work together to track more of their joint pipeline. So it kind of backs up earlier in the process if you're doing joint demand development. What are the leads you put in the pipeline together? And so you can track those to closure. Um, but, you know, that's still kind of the holy grail. It, it's very difficult to do. And that's unpacking things like, you know, acquisition costs and these unit economics of like, you know, for because in, in the SaaS world, right, we all know that we're trying to manage our businesses on some, you know, maybe CAC to LTV ratio, right? So customer acquisition cost to lifetime value. And we know that, you know, less than three, not very good. Three, you're, you're good, you're fine. You know, four, you're doing great. And five, you're kicking butt. Like you probably need to be spending a lot more money than you are spending, right? You need to put a lot more fuel on that fire. Have you seen any nascent or emergent, like, I would say frameworks like that are simple ways of like, if I, if I just know nothing about a SaaS business, but I know their CAC LTV, I can infer whether or not they have a healthy business with a very simplified, you know, boiled down. Have you seen any kind of metrics or benchmarking or leading indicators or lagging indicators that are, that is similar to like CAC LTV and SaaS? I've not really seen any benchmarks. They're going to have seen, um, some attempts at tracking what the total cost of acquisition, total cost of investment into a program and versus the outcomes in, in revenues. Um, what I've seen is they lack, um, you know, garbage in, garbage out. They lack the, dis <laughs> they lack the discipline of, of putting in good data to begin with. Um, would love to have a better answer than that. But I think we're still early days in understanding the impact of influence and how to measure that. I think um, anecdotally, I mean, Justin, you just you just ran through the QBRs, right? And um, 
you know, it's not the full picture, but I mean, wh- what do you, what do we see across, you know, win rates, right? I mean, we're talking well over two X on win rates, right. You know, and then, um, time to close like competitive win rates. There's a bunch of other tangential benefits that are, are hard to distill down to the same kind of core. Um, um, yeah, I think almost, I'm almost taking like a, a pilot approach to it almost with a partnership too, of if you can isolate a team where the partnership and the collaboration for influence really makes sense as a first stepping stone of that partnership. And then you use that to compare against another group that looks very similar, that sells the same product to a similar market, but just didn't have that partner involvement. I think that'll tell you a lot about impact on win rate, op size, how big is that opportunity for both you and the partner, how fast did that close and whether that, you know, is an, is an influential to use the cliche, to use the term influential play and, and partner motion for, you know, the two entities working together. But it does seem like in talking to more and more partnerships professionals, you know, the whole sourcing influence bucket, what counts as influence? How do you track it? How do you gradient it? Uh, you know, put a gradient to it still seems to be the, one of the, the age old thorns in the partner partnership professionals uh, sides. Yeah. Although I have seen what you were just talking about. I've seen one or two companies really track um, partner involved, no partner, and track it very precisely. Success Factors was one who did this, and this I last saw some really you know hard data on, and this was some years ago. Of uh, course, Success Factors has a, a enterprise level LMS um, success product owned by SAP. But this one particular, they saw that the deal sizes were like three times larger. They closed faster and they closed with a higher probability. And the top performing reps led with partners more. So they were able to track that pretty pretty much in hard numbers. Uh, and it's like, why wouldn't you do it? Right, <laughs> right, right. And then moving moving kind of across that closed one line into you know post-sale or aftermarket, it seems like the benchmarking there is, um, you know, maybe structured two ways. Like you kind of have, you know, was it product usage or an adoption, consumption, cross-sell, upsell? How do you think about like aftermarket or post-sale um, benchmarking? Um, I don't think there's still a lot of data on it, but I think it's it's very important to have partners that are in that space. You could start doing the benchmarking on it of what happens when you don't and when you do. Um, I think you're going going back to Marketo because when they started their their partner program, they they started with the traditional enterprise VARs, trying to work through them, and they didn't go anywhere. Right. Then they started working through marketing agencies, and that began to work, not only because they were recommenders, but at the back end, at the back end, customers still wanted to do marketing campaigns, and they wanted someone to help up set up Marketo and launch it. So they were in there making sure customers got value, long-term value out of their platform. And that's what I think we're, you know, we need to put a little bit more intentional focus on is not just getting the product installed, the customer bought. In fact, I just saw another software service that will remain nameless who a customer turned it off because they weren't getting any value on it. They had done a very minimal implementation, hadn't grown that implementation. They didn't know what value it was. They just felt uncomfortable using it. And so they said, well, we're going to go with something else. Whereas if they'd had a partner or someone in there to help show them how to use the product more effectively after market, after sale, use more, you know, the, you know, the role that, that when you sell software 
who kind of client only uses 10 features out of 2,000. Mm-hmm. If they had someone in there helping, how do you implement more of it? How to use more of it and how to measure their impact? They might've had a lifelong customer there. Right. Have you, have you seen that translate into any operating models before? So typically some head of operations or finance is building the the plan for the fiscal year, right? And they're working on it presumably six months, three months in advance. And then you have your acquisition and then you have your activation funnels for your business. And then have you seen partners make their way into that, into like the activation side where it's like, we're presuming that we're going to see 25% partner growth this year. And this is going to impact you know, uh, upsell, cross-sell, uptake, consumption, adoption by X. I have not seen um, many organizations address that deliberately. I'm beginning to. I'm beginning to see them do that more. In fact, I'm talking with this particular company that had their their switch turned off. Uh, They're beginning to pull in more partners that can provide the post-consulting. Just because they they understand that if if customers don't continue to use the product, um, you know, that it doesn't drive usage, it doesn't drive upsell or cross-sell, it doesn't drive more consumption of, of the of service. So I'm beginning to see more of that. And I think it's important um, to start laying those baselines. You know, if you, if you can start building within your own, your own uh, business model, you know, after acquisition, what is the ramp, typical ramp rate? It's usually pretty um, abysmal. But what happens if you put in you know, hook them up, hook your customer up with an imp- a partner that can help them, um, you know, drive success on your platform. Right. There's What's um, the net impact of that? And of course, they're going to be making money off of it, right? So that's another part of the economic model. I feel like there's this big need for, and maybe it's just me. I'm a geek for operating models. Like I love the, you know, the financial plan for the company and going deep into how are we, how are we going to grow revenue by 40%, 80%, 20% that next year. And all of the ways that that rolls back up into, you know, the, the, the net dollars at the end of the business. And there's just very few people that can speak confidently to how, even in their own company, how partners can impact that directly. Right. And like where those investments are being made. Um, I feel like there's an opportunity there, um, to kind of go deeper, um, and to spend more time on how to integrate, you know, partner into your operating model. Um, but I think that's probably, I guess, a topic for another, another show sometime. That's, that's one I'd love to geek out more. Jared's going to whip out a spreadsheet tonight and he's going to start cranking is what's going to go down, Norma. (laughs) And he's going to hit me up tomorrow morning and he's going to be like, okay, I think I've got it. And that it's going to be bleary eyed, no sleep. And that's, what's going to happen tonight. <laughs> and I've seen kind of the opposite of it, you know, I've seen economic models around the SAS business model where you, where you factor in a nutrition factor, right? You so many partners drop off after a certain right. time, but never has a, a, a growth model where you have partners in there, you know, rather than a, assuming there's a nutrition, there's always going to be some, but you know, how, how do you actually drive the aftermarket, the upsell, the cross-sell, the greatest consumption, you know, ramping up the consumption faster? A hundred percent. One idea this has really opened my eyes to is, you know, oftentimes when you're enabling your sales team and your, your product marketing team is talking about the product you're selling and who you sell to, they have a persona deck, right? And it has your ideal decision maker, the champion, this person, that person, that's all involved in the deal. But rarely do I see the, a partner in there as a persona. And 
you know, through this conversation, one idea is popping up to me is that partner is there, whether you're thinking about them and building for them and building an ecosystem <laughs> around them or they're, or they're not. And, um, I didn't really have a question off of that. It's just an idea that popped into my head of like, wow, okay, we talked to our customers about to understand them and to understand their, their buying teams and their personas and all their wants and needs. But we forget about this critical third party that is in most of our customers, you know, uh, in some to some degree, which is this partner that's also a part of their team advising them, making sure they get the most out of their yeah. technologies, the solutions they're bringing on. Um, and I, I think, uh, go for it. I, I, right, it gets overlooked, um, and and quite often, you know, it's one of my roles as a consultant is is to tell my clients to to don't overlook that when you're doing your account planning with your customers, who's there already, right? Who can help you, right? Who's working against you? <laughs> when I, I'd imagine even getting on your product marketing team's radar for that when they're talking to you know your customers about what features should we roll out. Who are the players in in your company? Also, getting them to ask who are your partners that you lean on for this. How do you resource it? I think yeah. could also make some dramatic strategic shifts within an organization if you're a partner professional looking for leverage internally. Thinking about um, you said something that I feel like every a lot of the audience there's folks that are. You know, very tenured and been doing business development and perhaps they're jaded um, because they've seen business development rise, you know, from nothing to where it's at today. I think it's playing an increasingly important role. Um, but in the beginning, I think, you know, 10 years ago, very different than it was today. Um, 10 years ago, it was really seen as transactions, right? Like 20 years ago, it certainly was, right? Like it's on-prem, you're trying to drive business, the move to the cloud. And you've consistently said to us that like, you know, not all partners are transacting partners, Right. And I feel like when most companies are spinning up a new channel or a new BD program or new something, they think about it solely through the lens of transactions. Tell me what you mean when you say not all partners are transacting partners. Well, just what we were, we're talking about, sometimes they're not selling your product. They're not taking a margin or gaining incentives on the back end. What they're doing is serving their clients. And they're doing that by recommending things that they think will solve their clients' uh, problems, but also probably has other uh, revenue streams around it that helps them, like consulting, like services, perhaps even IP. But they're not strictly what we think of as a channel where they are, um, you know, got you in their little kit bag and trying to present the customer a, a business case to buy you. Um, it's, it's more, um, they might come in and say, well, I think company XYZ has a really great solution for your, for what you're trying to do. And I'll be happy to bring them in here for you to talk to, but it's not. Um, um, and by the way, we're going to get a 10% margin in. Of course. 4%. Incentive at the back end. <laughs> of course. I think where I'm trying to go with this is I know we were kind of just talking about this topic, but let's assume there's no transaction. I mean, the way that I do it is I try to tie it to opportunity. So it's not just new business logos. Like if I have partners helping customers and there's an upgrade and expansion and upsell, there's more spend in that account, we'll attribute that partner to it. And we can assign, you know, uh, resources against that because they're trying to grow the accounts. 
in that situation, it, it still feels kind of transacting-y, you know, like there's some transaction involved. It just isn't new business logos, right? So it's not a, a new logo coming in, but the customer is, um, you know, expanding. Have Yeah, they're expanding on your platform. And, you know, and, and you know, the transactions on the partner side and that they, they're selling something, right? Whether it's, it, it might not be your, your SaaS product, but it's services, it's consulting, it's IP, it's something. Because they're, they're trying to build a business um, as well. But the transaction isn't, isn't your transaction. So the way to measure the non-transacting partners in the traditional sense would be around, obviously, maybe this is fairly common in today's SaaS world, like customer health, right? So you can typically put some numeric value on customer health between zero and a hundred. Um, and then the growth of that account in terms of spend with the company. So although they might not be necessarily driving like, Oh, here's this paper to go upgrade to this product that you sell, but you could say, Hey, I have a post-sale channel or partnerships person. Here's the book of partners that they manage. And you can measure things like partner attach rate. Like are there partners in more accounts, customer health, NPS, um, there's a bunch of the other indicators that you can utilize to kind of justify the the model there that isn't just a transaction. Yeah, that's that's true. And and you know what you growth in your own business is what you ultimately want to see, but um, it, it's coming from their influence, not their sales efforts around your product. Right, right. One thing that kind of going beyond ecosystem economics. Now we're kind of coming up to, on the end and Justin has some like heavy hitter questions um, that he put in there, like big area questions, which I love ending with these because then that means we probably need to do another episode on it is um, I don't think a lot of companies, Justin, this is your question. So I'm stealing it from you. Please rephrase it. But it's like, how do you decide on the right ecosystem mix? Like, I don't know that I've been intentional about to what degree I make investments in alliances versus channel. And if you've, if you've ever helped companies in thinking about business development, like there's tech alliances, which is a co-sell motion. There's channel, which is a service and sell motion. How do you think about where you place those bets? Yeah. Um, and then, and that's always a depends question, right? It, it depends. Uh, one of the things that I look at when customers are asking me that sort of thing or cl my clients are asking me that sort of thing is um, service capacity is, is one of the, the limiters on the velocity of your business. And I've seen this in a lot of different contexts, but if there is $4 of consulting or services around every dollar of subscription, well, you have to have that kind of service capacity to drive your business. Right. If there's only three dollars in the mark in the marketplace to drive your business, you're you're constrained. So this was particularly a case in, in one company I worked with in that there was a ten to one ratio. In that they took ten to and, and as a company you could not hire and train and and onboard that many professional consultants, professional services consultants to drive the level of business that you wanted to reach. You had to work with partners who had those consultants and the desire to do it. So a good part of our business was saying, okay, there's this much demand in the market. We think we can capture this much of it, but it's going to take this many consultants delivering this many hours of consulting in order to get there from here. And so we could do that calculation and say, okay, we need 4,000 consultants in the next year already running. 
what is it going to take to get there from here? And we kind of backed into that model and saying, okay, we need, you know, um, X number of, of consultants. Most of them at that stage came from the larger consultants, but we found there were a lot of niche players who could get up and rolling faster. So we, so we looked for those too. Um, but getting them on board, getting them trained and getting them deployed so that we could to meet the market demand. And that was particularly in a case where the market was just growing exponentially, you know, what Jeffrey Moore calls a tornado. Um, and in a tornado, it's not just good enough to grow fast. You have to grow faster than that tornado or you're losing market share. Interesting. So how did you how did you specifically do that 10 to 1, $10 services to $1 of subscription versus 4 to 1? How did you specifically get to that ratio in, in this client instance? Well, it was it was uh, um, by auditing some implementations. We knew what the customer bought. We knew how many how much services. In this case, we started with our own professional services. Says, okay, we had to have this many hours of consulting to do that implementation. And the nice thing about that is, then you go out to these implementation partners and you say, hey, there's X bazillion dollars around an implementation of this size, and that's when they start to engage, right? Because they know where they know what the opportunity is for them. The, the, this is where I've seen some companies, I won't name them because they're public. I think they're playing six degrees of Kevin Bacon. And here's what I mean by that is that like, oh, for every dollar, you know, to our ecosystem, for every dollar you spend in, you know, our customers spend in software, they're spending this much on services. And I think sometimes the lines are very fuzzy on like what constitutes services that are actually helping, helping the software. Like a lot of times it's tangential business problems that then they're attributing back to the software impacting, um, did you have any kind of tips or tricks around like, yeah, there's obviously the direct contracted revenue that a partner has, but if you actually to break down their proposal, maybe, you know, it's a 400K engagement, maybe 100K is related to the software that you sold. Are you going to attribute all 400K or are you going to attribute that 100K? Any advice for folks on how to actually monetize and say, here's your service opportunity? There's actually, you need to take a look at the service continuum because of different types of services, right? Some is going to be very, how are you going to be a better bank kind of consulting? So this is very high level McKinsey kind of stuff. Um, but that's part of the service continuum. There's also the kind of services that might relate to um, implementing, configuring, training the users to use your software. And then there's another set of services that might be related to integrating, creating those API integrations between your software and five other pieces of, of software running uh, in the environment. So there's that continuum of the services and you need to kind of get into and, and break it down within an implementation or, or a family of implementations and understand what those different components are. Because they do have different values too, because the services that can be done um, that are kind of configuration kind of sort, they're kind of low value in terms of low margin right. services, you know, but consulting on how to be a bigger bank that's high margin stuff. And, you know, not every partner in your portfolio is going to have that capacity of that trust with the customer. But those that do are going to get in very early and have a lot of influence. Yeah. At the end of the day, if it's a part of a bigger project, your software is an align item of a bigger services engagement, but the customer ends up growing. They have a healthier business. That's net net good for you. Right. It's a rising tide raises all ships. Um, and I, I feel like that's such a, 
that's such a good note to to kind of end on today, Norma, is around um, at the end of the day, if we really do care about what we do, we have to care about better customer outcomes. So like you started this conversation with starting with the customer experience and we're ending the conversation with, um, you know, ec- ecosystem economics is about the the customer outcomes. And if we're going to be measuring revenue and uh, the services to software ratios, right? Um, hey, it's okay to like, participate in um, that ratio being something like driving a better bank. Well, I don't know about you, but if I'm a software CEO, if I'm a founder, if I'm a member of the board, I want my customers to be healthy customers, not declining customers, because they're going to spend less money year over year, right? No one wants to go into an industry and sell to an industry that's going down. Um, So we got to help with business development, with partnerships, build better customers. And um, I think that is actually the ultimate goal of partnerships. Norma summed it up for us. Norma, thank you so much for partner up, uh, coming on Partner Up. One final thing I do want to say, give a massive shout out to um, Evan and Sunir and the 4,000 people at the Cloud Software Association. If you're not in the Slack group, go get in the Slack group. There is like weekly webinars. There's amazing content and it's all partnerships people. So if you've been looking for a network of folks like you to take kind of the learnings from this podcast off the air and talk with more people, go check out the Claude Software Association, join up in the Slack group, um, and you're going to love it. You have a great time. Justin and I are in there. Um, so Norma, any parting words today uh, during sales kickoff season for uh, the partner pros out there? <laughs> I think it's always start with the customer, you know, take the customer centric view of how you're partnering. I love it. I love it. Well, we'll see you next time on Partner Up. We got uh, Scott Barker coming up next from Outreach. So that's going to be a fun one on how to use community for building partnerships. So we'll see you next time, Partner Up. All right, all right. Um, So we'll stay on here. We'll leave recording running for a minute um, just to see if anyone's on. I think there were some folks having trouble getting into Riverside. Um, Let's see. Anyone there for Q&A? Jared, we do have a question from the chat. Norma, how how much of a different how much of a difference do you see with distribution of the d- traditional tech model from the '90s and what's happening with SaaS? <laughs> and this person's assuming I saw the '90s. Well, I mean, look at your LinkedIn. I did. Your extensive. <laughs> they, they might have saw BEA systems in there, and you and Bobby Knapp back in the day, and other guests on Partner Up. And after I did, actually. Um, what are the differences? Um, well, I think a lot of it has shifted. I mean, I was kind of at the beginning of that where, you know, BEA was all about APIs. And that's where a lot of the services happen today around SaaS, SaaS software is around the APIs. And I would say that was kind of the trigger transition point is that 90s, there was still a lot of on-prem, still, you know, a lot of... Um, you know, software, perpetual software licenses that, you know, build up your shelfware, uh, never got used. Uh, horror stories there. Um, company I worked for bought million dollars of SIBO and, and then forgot that there was, you know, $4 million of implementation that went with it and never got value out of it. Uh, but I think now it's, what's really different, I think, is the expectation for time to value. No one sits around six months, two years to implement their software to see value. That would be a death knell. You know, you, with, with SaaS software, you know, I'm seeing implementations. Well, you know, some, some are like almost immediate, right? When you, when you pick up your smartphone 
and you download an app, you want to see value right now. Um, in enterprise software, sometimes you're seeing like, you know, 30 days. You want to be up running and, and uh, transacting and doing whatever it is that you're doing with the software right away. So if I think of anything, the SaaS, the difference in the SaaS model is that the expectation of time to value is much shorter. You hit the nail on the head. Time to value is everything and the consumerization of enterprise experiences and even partner experiences. Um, like we live and breathe that every day at Drift. Like that's all that we talk about, Justin, is how the world has changed. The world has changed. The world has changed. We expect things now. I mean, the time I've been on this podcast, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine notifications on my phone. And I don't even want to check Slack, right? Like the expect, like people need things now. They need things now. Um, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of the biggest difference. Back then they were buying a promise and they knew they committed to a process, right? Like, okay, this is a journey for a year or two years to do some, you know, uh, you know, yeah, I can't imagine approaching, approaching a customer today and saying it that way. No way. No way. Um, and, and I think my take on that would be that it's really the, in a lot of ways, I've been seeing this more and more. I feel like partner is lagging behind the market by a factor of three. And the way I can kind of break that down is it's like, Maybe it's in three years, maybe it's in three um, three months. But what, what I mean to say is whenever you're looking at the latest trends, right? Most partners, they lag behind the cloud native stuff because they didn't see service opportunities, right? And whenever you're looking at today in today's world, then it's like AI. I mean, I'm talking to the world's leading SIs around their, their AI practices. There's lots of AI out in the market, but they're behind the curve. Right. And that time to value thing is like, it, it seems difficult to their business model. And I think the best analog here is actually in software development itself. Most projects started as waterfall, right? A waterfall project was what you scope everything out and you deliver everything. And that was Microsoft, right? Think about, I mean, Justin probably doesn't even know about this. He's never had to update Microsoft Windows. Justin, you ever had to update Windows? Yeah, back in the day. Back in the day, okay. You got to update Windows. But see, that was a waterfall methodology. And now we're used to like, you know, just continuous deployment, right? Continuous development. And I think channel is really lagging behind in a factor in that I imagine channel partners or service partners that are like, hey, day one, day two, day three, you're going to see value with us. And we're going to make it better week over week, right? And take the agile approach as opposed to the waterfall approach. So there's my pontification philosophy on uh, the markets there. We got another question in. Um, would you say that integration partnerships are more important than revenue partners in building an ecosystem for your product? I don't know if I would put one priority over another. I mean, definitely you need a partner that can help you uh, close the deal. Um, the integration partners help you stay in the deal, right? The retention. Once you're integrated with five other different software products, you're not you're not an easy rip and replace. Um, and it might be the same partner. You know, it might be the continuation of services that your transactional partner is bringing. Absolutely. It's. Um, I mean, lifetime value is the name of the game in SaaS, right? So that's acquisition plus retention and upsell and activation. It's just two sides of a different coin. 
lifetime value, but it's also you earn that value every month, you know, every yep. renewal. Yep. You're having to mind the customer. <laughs> I used to get told that when I back way back when, when I worked for Sun Microsystems, um, that we didn't deliver product, we abandoned it. <laughs> Unpacked it. Yeah. Unband- abandoned it? What? Abandoned it. <laughs> yeah, what? <laughs> Just, here you go. Yeah, because there was no ongoing. I mean, it was, here it is. There you go. Shipped it, delivered it, walked away. <laughs> Any other questions? I know we're coming up on the top of the hour, and we got to let Norma get back to transforming these big coast channels. Norma, before we bounce, I'm just curious if you could talk about any logos that you'd worked with in the past um, that you can actually talk about. The ones I can't talk about? No, no. Uh, well, obviously, I want you to talk about the ones you can't talk about, but I would just be curious, like, you know, could you name some of the companies that you've worked with? NDAs you, are you getting broken today. <laughs> big, like, transformation projects that, like, I think the world needs to know about to, to go, oh, yeah, there's there are big companies doing these things, and there are people like Norma out there that are... Um, yeah, well, you know, I've worked for the past three years with Google Cloud, Um and the reason being, three years ago, they really weren't positioned with a with a with a uh, partner ecosystem that could take them into the into uh, enterprise and migrate big workloads. Their cloud channel, and I, you know, I don't think they would, you know, slap a lawsuit on me for saying this, but their their cloud uh, ecosystem three four years ago was really about selling G Suite, 100%. which is a which is a different skill set than you need for. Uh, the kind of GCP platform they're running today, you know, to do migration, to do integrations, to leverage AI. And, you know, it's been a, it's been a, a journey and a lot of investment on their part to reshape their channel, their ecosystem, both, you know, all build, sell and um, um, service to be able to, um, you know, serve the enterprise and and catch up with their big competitors. Amazing. We'd um, we'd love to have you in the uh, Cloud Software Association. So whenever you get time in your uh, free schedule, um, hop in and uh, we'll uh, post the episode and get it out all, all there. But I, I'd highly encourage you to join because I think uh, long tail, um, they probably want to have you on like a deeper like webinar series around this and uh, some of these projects that you've been involved in. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and we're going to kill recording right now. So we have enough to wrap up and get Norma off to her next thing. Um, so thanks CSA and the folks that joined in and chat, uh, for this round and we will see you next time. Bye.